Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On the NewsHour tonight, congressional leaders meet President Biden to negotiate a spending deal and try to avoid a government shutdown in days. Michigan Democrats wonder how many will vote uncommitted in the state's presidential primary tonight to protest President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. And outrage over the alleged murder of a university student by a Venezuelan migrant fans the flames of immigration politics. We need to pay attention to broader factors that contribute to this kind of senseless violence rather than simply aiming our targets at immigrants. Welcome to the News Hour. The top four leaders in Congress met with President Biden in the Oval Office today to discuss how to fund the government and what should happen next for U.S. support of Ukraine. Congress faces a number of crises this week as leaders race to meet deadlines, including one that could spark a partial government shutdown. Funding runs out for parts of the government late Friday. And as we've been reporting, Ukrainians say without more U.S. support, they will lose the war. Lisa Desjardins has been following it all and joins us now. So, Lisa, this meeting was significant, especially for House Speaker Johnson, who, of all the people in that room, in the Oval Office, is likely the one who determines how things progress. Give us a sense of what happened. Well, it was significant. You're right. What happened here was a meeting that was serious. We know all of the leaders came out. They said it was positive discussion, but it was in some ways intense. It wasn't a classical meeting in the sense that it was a little bit lopsided. You have the Democrats in that meeting, including the president and Senate leader for the Republicans, McConnell, almost on the same page, that they want a quick funding solution this week, and they also want to fund Ukraine. On the other side is Speaker Johnson, who, whatever he personally thinks, has a problem that his conference hasn't decided what they want to do in the House. So you could hear that optimism, but also complicated tone as the leaders walked out. The meeting on um, Ukraine was one of the most intense I have ever encountered in my many meetings in the Oval Office. The overwhelming sentiment in that meeting is we got to do Ukraine now. And there are other issues, including border, which we should address, but not now. We want to fix border. But it was also clear the speaker did not make, didn't give a reason why you had to do one before you did the other. The other big priority for our country, of course, is the funding of our government. And we have been working in good faith around the clock every single day for months and, and weeks and over the last several days quite literally around the clock to get that job done. We're very optimistic. I, I hope that the other leaders came out here and told you the same. You can hear in that, that they're sort of testing each other. These are new relationships. But one thing they have up, that they're going up against is the history here. Let's look at the last year with the funding problems. Here's what's happened just in September. In September, they passed seven weeks of funding in Congress. November, they split up the bill, so nine and 11-week extensions. And then in January, some more, five and six weeks extensions that brought us to here. While there may be hope that these leaders can pass through bills this week to avoid that Friday deadline, I don't know. By my count, they don't have enough time. They have to pass a short-term resolution or we'll have a partial shutdown. Well, what is preventing Speaker Johnson from moving more quickly? Is this all tied to pressure from Donald Trump and the MAGA wing of the Republican Party? Absolutely. It is not just Trump, but it is Trump along with the hardline conservatives and the fractured nature, not just divided, of House Republicans. They are in several groups. We talk about House Speaker Johnson, who's just trying to keep his speakership going, could be ousted by any member bringing up a resolution to the floor. He has the trust and integrity portions with his conference, but they are not united. Let me show you what I mean and what he's up against in terms of the different demands of House Republicans right now in this current negotiation. There are some House Republicans, Freedom Caucus members especially, who want border changes in any deal this week. There are others who oppose any short-term funding patch. There are still others, listen to this, Jeff, who oppose the opposite. They don't want full funding bills because without those, maybe there'll be an automatic cut. And there are some that I've spoken to who do want a shutdown. They think that is good leverage for them. House Speaker Johnson is trying to negotiate all of this, but he's got to make a decision in the end. We heard uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer say that the exchange over Ukraine aid was one of the most intense scenes he's ever witnessed in the Oval Office. Where do things stand there, Lisa? Yeah, and he's a New Yorker, so, right. so I have a feeling that that tells us a lot. Um, House Speaker Johnson, when he came out, said essentially that Ukraine is not his priority. He may agree in theory that it needs to happen, but he has said 
America first. We need to deal with our problems first. That is a problem for Ukraine specifically. But there are some in the House trying to work around him. Specifically, I want to look at these two representatives, Jared Golden, a Democrat of Maine, and then also Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican of Pennsylvania. They are right now working on a workaround to get a bill that would have about $50 billion in aid to Ukraine in it. They believe it has the two-thirds support needed, but they would probably have to do that and go around Speaker Johnson. The question is, would that topple his speakership or not? They say they're serious. When is Johnson going to take action on Ukraine? He said they will move in a timely manner. I had to look that up in the dictionary because who knows what that means. It means not now. Yeah. Well, finally, Lisa, we expected action this week in the impeachment trial of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. At one point, the plan was for the Senate to get the articles of impeachment delivered. They have to be walked over from the House chamber to the Senate chamber. That didn't happen. Where do things stand? This is another thread tied in with everything else. House Republicans are pushing that back because they could have a partial shutdown this week. They think an impeachment of an officer of the United States, cabinet officer, would not look good. However, there are some Senate Republicans saying they want to make sure there will be a trial. Here's the number two Senate Republican, John Thune, today. I believe the Senate needs to hold a trial. I think this is, a, this is such a, a miscarriage of the law, and it is important that uh, the United States senators sit and hear, and the American people hear, about this incredible crisis at our southern border. Now, you hear him saying this is about the crisis at the border. Mayorkas and Democrats say he has done nothing wrong, that there is a crisis. But the issue here is I think Democrats, my reporting is, want to move to not have a trial. They do not think there's reason for one. We're going to check in with that maybe next week, maybe the following weeks, after we get past the other crises. All right. Lisa Desjardins following it at all for us. Thanks so much. You're welcome. In the day's other headlines, the people of Michigan took their turn weighing in on this year's presidential field. They cast ballots in the last primaries before the Super Tuesday contests next week. President Biden and former President Trump were expected to win again. Still, the president faced a protest vote over the war in Gaza, and Mr. Trump faced questions about broadening his base. Israel and Hamas cast doubt today on President Biden's suggestion that a Gaza ceasefire deal could be reached by Monday. Israeli officials said the remarks came as a surprise. Hamas insisted it has not backed off its demands. But at the White House, National Security Spokesman John Kirby defended the president's statement. He certainly shared with you his optimism that we can get there in, uh, in hopefully short order. But he also said, you know, it's not all done yet. And you, don't, and you don't have a deal until you have a deal. We don't have one right now. But we believe that we are getting closer. And, um, and while we don't want to sound too sanguine or Pollyannish about it, we do think that there's been some serious negotiations. Meanwhile, more food, medical supplies, and other relief were airdropped into Gaza. The packages floated down to the Mediterranean shore as crowds of Palestinians ran along the beach to grab them. Communities across Israel held local elections today despite the ongoing war. Voters chose mayors and city council members in most places. But evacuated towns near Gaza and Lebanon had to postpone their elections until November. In Ukraine, the military has retreated from more territory in the east after intense battles overnight. Government troops withdrew from two villages outside of Abdivka, a larger city captured by Russian forces earlier this month. The Russians have stepped up their push as Ukraine runs short of weapons and ammunition. A veteran human rights activist in Russia was sentenced today to two and a half years in prison for criticizing the war in Ukraine. Oleg Orlov co-chaired the Nobel Peace Prize winning group Memorial. In his closing statement, he said he did not regret speaking out against the Kremlin and he denounced the war again before being led away. We live in the 21st century. Those guys are going backwards to 20th, 17th, and even 16th. Unfortunately, they are dragging our country with them, but we will win anyway. Orlov's sentence is the latest in Russia's efforts to quash dissent over the war. Back in this country, a federal jury in New York convicted two men of murdering hip-hop DJ Jam Master Jay almost 22 years ago. Born Jason Mazel, Jay helped propel the group Run DMC to stardom and into the pop music mainstream in the 1980s. 
He was shot and killed in his music studio in 2002. Prosecutors said the motive was a drug deal gone bad. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors apologized today to black residents and their descendants for racist laws and policies over the years. It was seen as a first step in the process of considering financial reparations. San Francisco joins Boston in apologizing for its past treatment of black citizens. And on Wall Street, stocks mostly searched for direction. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 96 points to close at 38,972. The Nasdaq rose 59 points and the S&P 500 added eight. Still to come on the news hour, an IDF soldier's video diaries offer a unique perspective on Israel's war in Gaza. Skepticism grows over tech billionaires' plans to ease the Bay Area's housing crunch by building a new city. The story of an African-American woman who helped take down one of America's most notorious mob bosses, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Today, voters in Michigan are casting their votes in that state's presidential primary. And some Democratic activists say they're hoping to send a message to President Biden by voting uncommitted. It follows growing frustration among some Muslim and Arab Americans over the administration's handling of the war in Gaza. Four years ago, I voted for Joe Biden. Um, it was important that we vote to get Trump um, out of office. And today, I feel very disappointed in, in Joe Biden. And I don't feel like I did the right thing last election. For more, we're joined now by Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes. Welcome to the News Hour. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Jeff. So this push by some Democratic activists to urge voters to, to vote uncommitted in this primary, this has really picked up steam since it was launched earlier this month, to the point where now even Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is saying that she expects, in her words, a sizable number of protest votes against President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. Do you agree with that? And what's your level of concern? I am so thrilled that so many folks are participating in this process. We fought hard to be an early state and to have our voices heard early in this primary process. And that's exactly what's happening. Over a million folks grabbed ballots early on and voted. And I am happy that these folks are reaching for the Democratic ballot um, and participating in this process. And I'm looking forward to taking this enthusiasm and interest in the process into November, where the question is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And we know the answer is Joe Biden. They might be taking the Democratic ballot, but they're not voting for the Democratic candidate. They're making their voices heard, Jeff, and, and I am I'm pleased that they're able to do that. That's part of this process. We have a big tent, and part of the reason we built this tent and part of the reason we wanted to be part of this process was to make sure that the voices of Michiganders were part of the overall conversation, and that's exactly what's happening right now. And this president's listening. We're listening. You know, you heard the president yesterday say that he's expecting to have some news about a ceasefire probably as early as next week. That's great news, and that's a sign that he's been listening to these folks here in Michigan, and that's what we wanted. Well, as you said, Michigan Democrats pushed for the state's primary to be earlier this year to give the state a greater voice in the overall electoral calendar and to really highlight President Biden's perceived areas of strength with black voters around Detroit, with union workers. But there's a survey from Detroit News and WDIV-TV last month that showed President Biden really has weak support from nearly all of the Democrats' key constituencies. That's black voters, voters between the ages of 18 and 29, and those holding college degrees. How is the party aiming to turn that around? So that's exactly described my job, right? I am, I am organizing our team, our volunteers, our staff, and our leaders across the state. We've been talking to voters and we'll continue talking to voters at their doors, on their phones, wherever we can find them, even in their social media, to make sure we're telling the story of the Biden-Harris administration and what they've done on behalf of Americans and Michiganders. Think about the manufacturing jobs they've brought back to this state, the good union-paying jobs that have come here, and, of course, the protection of reproductive rights. We're going to continue to have that conversation and also talk about the contrast between the choice which they'll have in November, which is either Joe Biden or turning back the clock to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's been very clear about who he is, what he's done. We're going to tell the story of his record. We're going to tell the facts of who he is, what he has said he will do. The man wants to be a dictator. He calls people of color poison. He is not good for America and absolutely not good for Michiganders. 
Can President Biden win Michigan without the support of those Arab American and Muslim Americans who say they are profoundly unhappy and disappointed with what they see as his unwavering support of Israel? We're going to continue having those conversations. The president's going to keep listening to folks, and we're going to win in November, building that coalition that we have had in place for several cycles now and making sure that folks turn out and support the president, recognizing that otherwise we may end up with Donald Trump, which is unacceptable to these communities. Lavora Barnes is the Democratic Party chair for the state of Michigan. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. The murder of a college student in Georgia and the immigration status of her alleged killer have thrown new fuel into the heated debate over the U.S. southern border and the government's policies. At the University of Georgia, grief hangs in the air after last week's death of 22-year-old nursing student Lakin Hope Riley. Students, including her sorority sisters, gathered yesterday to remember Riley. She showed incredible wisdom throughout her friendships. Many sisters have shared that she was the best listener. She would allow you to ramble on about how your day was or how your life had been lately, and she soaked it up intently. Her wisdom flowed throughout all aspects of her life as she had an eye for those who were secretly struggling. Riley's body was found in this wooded area on campus last Thursday. Her roommate had reported her missing after she failed to return from a morning jog. 26-year-old Venezuelan citizen Jose Antonio Ibarra was charged with her murder. Immigration officials say in September of 2022, Ibarra was detained in Texas after illegally entering the U.S. from Mexico, but then released for further processing. Students returned to classes this week, but the community has been shaken to its core. Riley's death is believed to be the school's first homicide in nearly 30 years. I'm a mom, and as a mom, I couldn't imagine, couldn't imagine if something like this happened to my children. Beyond Georgia, campus. A dangerous foreign national broke the law and suffered no consequences because of fringe policies the far left claims are compassionate. This is another senseless, preventable death because of this open border. Conservatives and right-wing media link the Biden administration's immigration approach with Riley's death. Lakin's death is a direct result of failed policies on the federal level. Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp pointed to record high numbers at the U.S. southern border. It is an understatement to say that this is a major crisis. And because of the White House's failures, every state, as I've said repeatedly, is now a border state. And Lake and Riley's murder is just the latest proof of that. On social media, former President Trump said, quote, Biden's border invasion is destroying our country and killing our citizens. And he reiterated his campaign pledge to, quote, seal the border and deport illegal criminals. The White House has expressed condolences to Riley's family, but has not responded directly to the Republican accusations. All this as both Biden and Trump plan dueling border visits to Texas on Thursday of this week. And to help put some context around these questions around immigration and crime, I'm joined now by Sharis Kubrin. She's a professor of criminology, law, and society at the University of California, Irvine, and co-author of the book, Immigration and Crime, Taking Stock. Professor, let's begin with the obvious here. Our thoughts are obviously with the family of Lake and Riley and her friends. This is a senseless loss of a young woman's life. Authorities also today just revealed her death was due to blunt force trauma. And the man we know accused here is an undocumented immigrant. Those are all facts. What do you make of the larger conversation around those facts right now? When I heard about this tragic event, my heart went out immediately. That is, of course, the first reaction I had. But the second one is, uh-oh, I hope that this is not used as this awful event is not used for political advantage. And it appears that that is what is essentially happening. Um, we see a tragic event become a sparking point for really restrictive policies um, aimed at immigrants. So I know in your work and in your book, you look exactly at this issue and going back even to the early 1900s about the intersection of crime and immigration. Broadly speaking, what have you learned? So there's been so much research that's been done on how immigration and crime are related, both among immigrants, are immigrants more or less crime prone? than their native-born counterparts, and does immigration to an area cause crime to go up or down? And more recently, there's been an explosion of research in this area because of public perception and interest. And what's 
pretty amazing is across all this research, by and large, we find that immigrants do not engage in more crime than, than native-born counterparts, and immigration actually can cause crime to go down rather than up, so quite contrary to public perception. And does any of your research examine uh, any differences between an undocumented immigrant and those who are legally here in the United States? Right. That's become an increasingly important question that we've sought to answer. There are a handful of studies that have begun to do this using pretty sophisticated estimation techniques to identify the number of undocumented individuals. And what those studies have found is similar to the research in general. There is no um, uh, criminal, criminogenic impact among undocumented immigrants. In other words, undocumented immigrants are not engaging in more crime, contrary to public perception. And the presence of undocumented immigrants in an area does not correlate with higher crime, particularly violence. Professor, I'm sure you've heard this argument before. We're hearing this again, which is that if this man had not been allowed to enter into the United States, if he'd not been allowed to stay, he couldn't have committed this crime, and this young woman would still be alive today. Are people making that argument wrong? Well, it's not that that argument's wrong, because essentially that is true, but I think it's misplaced, because at the end of the day, if we really do want to cut down on crime in general, absent this one horrific incident, um, making restrictive, exclusionary, and harsh policies aimed at immigrants is really not going to yield the benefits of reductions in crime that many people believe, largely because, as I just mentioned, immigrants are not the ones engaging in crime. I, I would point out also that there's been a lot of instances of violence on campus with young individuals getting killed. A tragic events, most of which are occurring by native-born Americans. And so I think we need to pay attention to broader factors that contribute to this kind of senseless violence, rather than simply aiming our targets at immigrants. So that leap from the crime of one person catalyzing to fear of an entire group or population, we don't really see that, as you mentioned, with native-born Americans or white Americans more broadly. Is that something unique to immigrant populations? So that's the interesting thing. I've never seen a headline, not once in my life, that has read native-born American has engaged in this crime or that crime. And so what happens is most of the stories identify a person's immigrant status and link it with crime in headlines, in social media, in the news. That essentially reinforces the public perception that both go hand in hand, when in fact the data show just the opposite. So it's an uphill battle in terms of public perception. What should we expect to see in the months ahead? We are in an election year. Immigration is a top issue for voters around the country. Do you expect this conversation to continue at this kind of heated level? I think it will, unfortunately, for the exact reasons I mentioned early on, which is that this is an opportunity, an awful opportunity, to seize on a political advantage. What I hope happens is that we identify places where we can improve things when it comes to immigration, but also do so in a way that makes smart policy policy that will help things more broadly rather than simply use a scapegoat moment to um, make more restrictive policies that are not going to do much in the end for crime. Professor Sharis Kubrin from the University of California, Irvine, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Now for a rare view of the Israel-Hamas war from an Israeli infantryman. Sam Sank is a British Israeli whose period of service has just ended. In normal life, he works in information technology. For his months of fighting in Gaza, he carried a small video camera, and special correspondent Malcolm Brabant sat down with him in London. This is the video diary of the soldier behind the officer on point. Together with my, my brothers in arms, we're part of history. This will probably be a very significant event in the history of the Middle East, let alone Israel. Master Sergeant Sam Sank. It's also good for the world to see as well. And it shows, you know, the, the true experience of a, of a soldier on the front line and, and maybe shows a different side to what one sees through propaganda or social media as soldiers and actually as you can see now I'm a, I'm a real person with real emotion and and real thoughts yeah yesterday was awful this place stinks 
smell of dead bodies everywhere. Um, not a great start. Sam Sank went to war on October the 7th, immediately after the terrorist attack by Hamas. After training in northern Israel with his company, or Pluga, Sank entered Gaza several weeks into the conflict. We have just entered Gaza. And spent nearly two months there. Here we go. Here we go. Yesterday was a really, really bad day. Two guys from our Pluga got injured, one quite seriously. Was in a helicopter to the hospital. Both were shot in the back. Man, two secs. Just gonna check out this peel. As second in command of his platoon, Sank ventures forward to examine the entrance of a Hamas tunnel beneath Khan Yunis, once home to a quarter of a million Palestinians. Gaza is arguably one of the most dense places in the world, and Hamas has decided to use that as a battlefield and to use human shields to protect themselves and to put all the civilians above the ground and all their ammunitions and terrorists below the ground. Got this peer. Rats. A few Israeli soldiers were killed at that specific spot. So after weeks of fighting, we were able to locate the tunnel entrances. People who are watching that might think that you were cheering Palestinians' homes being blown up. So the context of that video is the tunnel being destroyed and for us it was a sense of achievement knowing that we had killed Hamas terrorists that were still hiding underneath and we had uh, eliminated a big threat to our, uh, to our soldiers' lives. We're in central Khan Yunus, eastern central Khan Yunus, in a new house, sitting here on guard duty with my main man Leshem. Here you can see close to a big mosque. Very urban area. This is going to be our new home for the next few days. But uh, feeling good, you know, liking the new area. Sank's war is over. He's returned to his civilian job in IT and now has time to reflect. How can you justify all those thousands of women and children being killed during this conflict? I don't think I can justify the, the numbers, but I can explain why that's happened. Um, we are dealing with an organization that has decided to put civilians at the forefront of their, of their bases, of their battlefield. Bokertov, welcome to southern Karnunis. We're in a house. Look at the lovely Jews. Jerusalem decorations on the wall. Um, arrived here yesterday. Uh, crazy, crazy dissonance coming in to a more urban area like this it was insane. Honestly, at night, seeing going through the city, seeing the destroyed buildings. Do you think there might have been a better way of fighting this war to, to really more accurately target those people who were responsible for starting it? I think if there was a better way of doing it, then it would have been done. Because I trust in the strategic uh, command of the IDF and Israel to make the best decision um, to protect its soldiers and to protect the Palestinian civilians as much as possible. Do you feel as though Israel has fallen into a trap created by Hamas because they knew that Israel would come in and in the end, if it kept going, would end up perhaps losing world opinion? Yes, for sure. Uh, Hamas set the trap up. It's the, it's the ploy that Hamas and other terrorist Palestinian organizations have been using for many years. Unfortunately, Israel doesn't have a choice and has to move into that trap because if, again, we want to defeat the enemy, destroy the terrorists and bring our people back, we have to go into Gaza. The world, as I see it, will always be against Israel in this conflict. There is an underlying anti-Semitism that exists. This is just our generation's um, persecution of Jews. Hopefully we'll be 
couple quiet days before we're eventually supposed to leave. Final Shabbat in Gaza. Can't wait to go home. Can't believe how long it's been. I'm just counting down the hours, literally. Everyone's making fun of me but I'm counting down the hours, but I'm desperate for this all to be over. Just want to get back to normal life. Do you think you could ever live side by side with Palestinians? 100%. Uh, you look at conflicts that have existed over the history of the world, people that hated each other with a passion and are now living together in peace. Whether I think it will be a happy peace, maybe not, but even a cold peace is better than what exists today. And yes, I truly believe that it can happen. And if the Palestinians love their children more than they hate ours, there will be peace. If they start celebrating life rather than celebrating death, there will be peace. For now, such a peace remains in the realm of dreams, despite suggestions that progress is being made. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Malcolm Brabant. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. If you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This take-no-prisoners approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Cities worldwide are overcrowded, overpriced, and a source of global warming. The dream? Build a livable, affordable, eco-friendly community. Paul Solomon went to California to see the plans for one of those big dreams. But there's still plenty of skepticism about that vision and the developers behind it. The line will be home to 9 million residents. Want a brand new dream city built? How about the line in Saudi Arabia? The line is 500 meters tall, 200 meters wide. No cars, no carbon emissions, designed to host a population of 9 million. Well, maybe someday, maybe not. But a lot closer to home and perhaps to reality, there's now California Forever, a planned cutting-edge community that has gobbled up 60,000 acres of farmland in Solano County, an hour north of San Francisco. We're building a new community in the Bay Area. CEO Jan Schramek. That's going to make it possible for a uh, new generation of Californians to realize the California dream uh, the way that prior generations have been able to do it. This is the footprint that they're presenting. Here's how the new community depicts itself in the plans it showed Ronald Cott, mayor of Rio Vista, population 10,000, which borders the 60,000 acres. Surrounding communities, you know, kind of come here, do all their restaurants and shopping and that kind of thing. And, Pedestrians. And pedestrian, but everything is walkable. Housing for 50,000 to start, as many as 400,000 people eventually, with condos a lot cheaper than anything you can get in and around San Francisco. 18,000 acres for the town, another 21,000 for a solar farm to power it with energy to spare. We're in the heart of the new community. This will be medium density urban form uh, blocks of, of housing and our downtown will be just uh, a little bit this way from where we're standing today. Bronson Johnson of California forever. When you're starting from scratch and you're building new water recovery plants and new energy plants, this can be entirely renewable and a sustainable model for the rest of the world to follow. In order to expand the project eventually, the group has made a series of legally binding promises to create 15,000 new jobs, spend $30 million to protect local ecosystems, and allocate $400 million for housing assistance. Homes that families can afford in safe and walkable neighborhoods. Moreover, it gives people a chance to build generational wealth. A historical problem for black people, says local real estate agent Princess Palmer. A lot of times it's the down payment and the closing costs that prevent people from being able to buy here in California. So that would be an amazing opportunity that you just don't see right now in California. Another local, Alex Pate, likes the project for a different reason. 
I have small children, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I have these concerns of where will they live and is there going to be housing for them when they are ready to buy. So the project seems pretty unobjectionable, right? Well, of course not. There have been objections galore, like at this town hall meeting. How do you expect anyone in this room or the county to believe what you're saying? For years, a firm known only as Flannery Associates quietly amassed tens of thousands of acres in Solano County, and no one knew why. Only last August did the New York Times report that Flannery was backed by Silicon Valley billionaires, which CEO Shramak now acknowledges. Our main investors are a group of Californians who've decided to double down on the state. So they include Lorraine Powell Jobs, John Doerr, Michael Moritz, Mark Andreessen, and the venture fund Andreessen Horowitz. And Shramik only first appeared before locals in November. Locals didn't like the secrecy and also worried about the strains that come with development, like water depletion. Every drop of water in this county is taken. Catherine Moy, mayor of Fairfield, abutting the project, they do have some water that they have from the land that they bought, okay? It's not enough for a city. It's not enough for that. So they say they're going to buy water from elsewhere. Okay, well, I, I bet they might. Um, but I don't think it's going to be enough. But says CEO Shramek. We have a water guarantee. For every single building we build, whether it's an office building or a manufacturing facility or a home, we have to prove that we have enough water for many, many decades, including through drought periods. This is my grandfather and one of his pals. A little ways down the highway, rancher Kathleen Threlfall now tends the property purchased by her great-grandparents. When I come down the road, it's what everybody in the world wants. It's like the whole relaxation experience. I'm home and this is my place. And how long are you gonna stay here? Probably until I drop off the tractor or something. <laughs> so offers to buy her 243 acres, starting at $2 million, now up to 4.5, were non-starters. They have tried to buy my land. I have said no. Why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is my spot. There's the phrase we all know, NIMBY not in my backyard. Right. Oh, God, I hate but, the idea of being a NIMBY. I really do. Well, I, but that's what you are. But no? that's what I am. That's what I am in this case. Yeah. I in mean, this case, I'm saying um, this is not a good idea in this particular place at this time. I don't like being called an, a NIMBY either. Again, Mayor Moy. I'm just a person who grew up here, love this area, and this is um, upending all of that. There's one other big issue, the lawsuit. We have spent more on this lawsuit than what it would cost to get our kids through school. That's a half a billion dollar suit against landowners who refused to sell, claiming they colluded to inflate the price. Ian and Margaret Anderson, and even their distant family members have been forced to defend themselves. They just pulled those family members in as well, I think just as a strong-arm tactic to frighten people to sell their land. The CEO's version? We made an offer to the Andersons. They made a counteroffer where they asked for a very high price. We said, no, thank you. We don't want to buy the property at that price. Um, and the lawsuit alleges that after that, um, they organized um, this price-fixing conspiracy in order to force us to pay the higher price. So have you guys been colluding with other people to jack up the price? I've been a farmer in this area for uh, 67 years, and I've never done any colluding in that realm any way, shape, or form. As to the discussion of selling, given the cost of the suit, it was and remains a painful one. It's amazing what a person considers doing when they are being asphyxiated. And that's what we felt was happening. There were many discussions between us about what's the right thing to do. Do we do what's right for us and plant our heels? Or do we think about the possibility to provide for our son?
in the future. And to keep the tradition. Keep the family operation going. But there must be a price at which you would sell, no? Well, I take a little bit of offense to that because I wake up each morning looking forward to the farm day growing crops. I think there are some opportunities for our city. There are some uh, warning signs for our city too. As mayor, Cot is in favor of economic growth. As a resident who treasures where he lives, not so sure. But in November, he and his fellow citizens of Solano County will have to vote on preserving their backyard as is or opening it up to others. For the PBS NewsHour, Paul Salman. And we'll be back shortly for the story of a woman who helped take down one of America's most notorious mob bosses. But first, take a moment to hear from your local PBS station. It's a chance to offer your support, which helps keep programs like ours on the air. For those of you staying with us, in the 2,000 years since the Chinese invented paper and paper cutting, artists around the world have developed their own unique styles. Earlier this year, special correspondent Kat Wise visited an artist whose work is inspired by the natural beauty and people of the Pacific Northwest. Every morning, artist and author Nikki McClure takes a long walk in the woods surrounding her home in Olympia, Washington. She feeds the birds and wildlife that dwell here and spends some time on the beach, just steps from her front door. Inspiration for her art is everywhere. By the time I've taken that walk, an idea, a story will have shown itself to me, and then I sit down and I work. McClure begins with a sketch, which she transfers to black paper, and then begins to work her magic with her knife. Cut by tiny cut for nearly 30 years, McClure has revealed the world she sees and the creatures in it. McClure is the author and illustrator of 15 books, and she's collaborated on several more, including the New York Times bestseller All in a Day with author Cynthia Ryland. She also sells her original paper-cut art, prints, and a yearly calendar. McClure's deep connection to nature and her surroundings can be traced to her early years in Olympia when she studied natural history at the Evergreen State College. I just kept drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing every stick, every leaf, every insect, every bird. It focused and trained my eye to see details and then trained my hand to draw those details. For a time, McClure also wrote and performed music and lived next to one of the most famous musicians to come out of Olympia during that era, Kurt Cobain of the band Nirvana. So I moved into this house and Kurt lived behind and I shared the wall and I could hear him play his songs through the wall, seeing them play. There was this strong connection in this house. After deciding to become a full-time artist, McClure began experimenting with paper cutting. She self-published her first book, Apple, for children in 1996. I found that making art was uh, a more calming way to communicate. I'm singing my songs still, but it, there's a child in a lap, in a home, and it's ultimately like that's where I want to sing my songs. They call these exacto knives, but they're not really exact. They have this they have a mind of their own sometimes. And this was this one morning where I was swimming and I had my arms in front of me, and the way that the water was making my arms was that they were all squiggled. They weren't no longer solid, even though I knew that they were solid. <laughs> How do you know where to cut to make the image reveal itself? I don't. You just have to trust it. What I really like about this process is that there's so many mistakes made. Really? And that you're making mistakes all the time in, in the sense of like, oh, that didn't quite work out. But you just keep going and you know, really, it's just a piece of paper. 
But oh, what she can do with a piece of paper. Many of her works are focused on her experiences as a mother and raising her son Finn with her husband, J.T. Scott, a woodworker in Olympia. It was such a remarkable gift to participate in this life as it developed and formed and grew and started asking questions like, Mama, is it summer yet? Mama, is it summer yet? Not yet, my little one, but the buds are swelling. Soon new leaves will unfold. Mama, is it summer yet? Not yet, my little one, but the squirrel is building her nest. Soon her babies will be born. In What Will These Hands Make, released in 2020, McClure highlights a family and their community as they prepare for a celebration. This is the center map spread from the book, What Will These Hands Make? And it basically tells the story of this family. And here they are right here. And they are going from Grandma's house, there's Grandma raking, all the way across town to this cake, because there's going to be a big party at Grandma's house later. The community, filled with people who make things with their hands, here's my friend Mariella's pottery studio, is fictional. But many of the characters and businesses are inspired by our mutual hometown, Olympia. Sometimes I row into town, and I would row over and go to Browser's bookstores here. The real Browser's bookshop is one of the local businesses McClure hand delivers her calendars to each year. Hey, Andrea. I brought you more calendars. Andrea Griffith is the store's owner. Nikki's work, it feels like Olympia. It's so tied to the natural world, and she's, I think she teaches us how to see things here. Like many in Olympia, Griffith says she feels yes. a connection yeah, to McClure and the life experiences she reveals through her art. Last month's calendar was an image of her son's boat sailing kind of away because her son was going to college. He's leaving, so I think, I think we're all a little sad. I guess what I want people to come away with or to feel when they look at my work is a sense of place and to calm down and slow down and to just take a moment. Our lives are so fast. Everything's just, you know, now, 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 that we forget even what time of season it is. The picture can transport them to a quiet, slow, still moment, um, just for a brief second. McClure has been working on illustrations for a new book, which will be released in March. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Kat Wise in Olympia, Washington. And now to the story of an African-American woman who helped take down one of America's most notorious mob bosses. John Yang has this report that originally aired on PBS News Weekend as part of our Black History Month series, Hidden Histories. Eunice Carter always understood the power of public service. When she was seven years old, her parents, both social activists, fled the South after the 1906 Atlanta race riots, moving the family to Brooklyn, New York. She was ahead of her time. Shaquilla Alvaranga is the director of public programs at the Ma Museum in Las Vegas. Her father, uh, William Hunton Sr., he founded the Black Division of the YMCA, and her mother was a social worker, an activist, and a political organizer. And she also worked for the YMCA's war efforts during World War I. And she was one of the women assigned to work with um, about 200,000 segregated Black troops who were stationed in France at the time. So her her family history um, holds a lot of depth and a lot of um, history when it comes to civil rights. So this is the example that Carter is growing up in, and this is who she looks to for inspiration. Jermaine Fowler is the author of The Humanity Archive, which highlights the achievements of black Americans that history books have long ignored. Her family also made sure she, she got a good education. She went to Smith College. She was only the second black woman to receive a bachelor and a master's degree in four years in 1921. And then she entered Fordham Law School as the first black woman to graduate from that school. 
She became an assistant district attorney, mostly working in what was then called women's court, prosecuting sex workers. Her talents came to the attention of Thomas E. Dewey, then beginning his rise to national prominence as a New York State special prosecutor going after organized crime. Carter joined his otherwise all-white, all-male team. They, you know, kind of had this unconventional relationship, um, but Dewey clearly knew how talented and how educated Eunice Carter was. She was out in the community and a lot of people were talking to her and, you know, they may have not felt as comfortable talking to the men about, you know, what they were doing. She was paid less than her male counterparts and passed over for promotions. But her experience in women's court gave her knowledge they didn't have. She noticed that women being arrested for prostitution from all over New York City were being represented by the same lawyers and the same bells bondsmen. She meticulously followed the connections back to the reigning boss of mafia bosses, Charles Lucky Luciano. Luciano is this very savvy businessman, but he's also a ruthless mafioso and what we know of as the mafia today was started by Luciano, who consolidated these blood-feuding gangster families during the Prohibition era into one centrally supervised criminal syndicate. After months of um, interviewing and wiretapping, Carter and um, her co colleague at the time, they convinced Dewey that organized crime essentially controlled the brothels. They would pocket about $40 of their $200 weekly earnings. And in contrast, Luciano earned millions every year. Carter spearheaded an investigation that included raids on brothels across New York City. The evidence gathered led to Luciano's 1936 conviction on more than 60 counts of forced prostitution. He was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison. This episode really helped establish Thomas Dewey nationwide, ran for political office. He was a presidential candidate. How much credit did, did Eunice Carter get in all of this? We kind of see her overlooked, and it's really just within the last few years that we're recovering her legacy and our contributions to this case uh, and this grand place that she holds in American history in terms of uh, prosecution and going against organized crime. After leaving the government, Carter entered private practice. She was active in the YWCA, the NAACP, and was an advisor to the United Nations. But it was her work in the Luciano case, helping get justice for the women he abused, that cemented Carter's legacy and earned her the title Lady Racket Buster. She was able to really um, hone in and, and really put the, this case together in a way that um, only she could do. And join us again here tomorrow night when we'll have a look at how some governors are trying to solve their state's problems at a time of intense political polarization. And that is the News Hour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Navaz. On behalf of the entire News Hour team, thank you for joining us.